Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Monica Hesse, a feature writer for the Washington Post, as well as young adult author. Her books include a pair of science fiction novels, Stray and Burn, and this spring, she's moving into historical fiction with Girl in the Blue Coat. It's being published in April by Little Brown, which is sponsoring this podcast. Girl in the Blue Coat is set in Amsterdam during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. Hesse's heroine, Hanukkah Bakker, helps her family subsist by delivering black market goods around town. After a customer begs for her help in locating a girl named Miriam, who's gone missing, Hanukkah's anger at the occupation only grows as she begins to learn the extent of what is happening to Jewish citizens in Amsterdam. Soon she's drawn into an underground resistance movement, all while trying to uncover the truth of what happened to Miriam. Monica, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So, you know, in your acknowledgments uh, to this book, you write that you knew you wanted to write a story uh, set in World War II Amsterdam. Uh, why was that? World War II has has always been a time period that I found really fascinating. Like a lot of girls, like a lot of kids in the world, uh, The Diary of Anne Frank was a seminal book for me. I probably read it 20 times when I was growing up. And when I visited Amsterdam as an adult, the city really came alive for me in a way that made me realize I knew a lot about the city through Anne Frank's eyes. I didn't know a lot about the city through the eyes of the people who would have been helping her, through the eyes of the people that would have been riding bicycles down cobblestone streets and would have been organizing ration coupons. And I really wanted to learn about the city in that time period in a, in a different kind of way. And when was this trip? Was it this while you were starting um, to write the book? Was it uh, sort of leading up to that point? It, it was before I wrote the book. I, it was being in the city that first gave me the idea for the book. Mm. It was a, a trip a couple of years ago. And um, I had a vague idea for a mystery that I wanted to write, but I didn't know where it should be said or when it should be said or what characters should be in it. And it was like that trip to Amsterdam was finding the puzzle piece that had been missing. And then it plopped very nicely right in with the rest of the pieces. And did you end up uh, returning to Anne Frank's story as well? I did. I, I read it again just because, I mean, not only is it an incredible book for all of the reasons we think of it being an incredible book, she was also just an amazing writer. At the age of 12, she was a better writer than most of us will will ever be in our lifetimes. And so that was really gratifying to, to revisit as an adult, to realize that not only are you reading this amazing work of, of human triumph, but you're also just reading a beautiful storyteller. So I mentioned in the intro, you have two previous young adult books, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, they have not been uh, published here? No. Um, Girl in the Blue Coat is my first book in the United States. Okay. Well, can you talk a little bit about those two? Sure. Uh, the first two, Stray and Burn, are a, a duology, I guess you would call them. They're, they're a pair of books about a virtual reality experiment called The Julian Path, in which um, children who would otherwise be in the foster care system instead are living the li are living one boy's life. They're living the life of a boy named Julian who was determined to have the perfect existence. And so they're all sort of following along in his life. And it's about what happens when you try to break free, when you decide that you'd rather follow your own path. Hmm. Is there any uh, movement about, uh, you know, thinking about bringing those books over here? Or are you more focused on, uh, Girl in the Blue Coat and Future Projects for now? 
Little Brown is going to publish e-versions of those books, which okay. I, which I'm totally excited about. But I'm mostly focusing on Girl in the Blue Coat, and I, I had such a great time with historical fiction that I think that my next book for kids will will also be in that genre. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you're a writer uh, by trade, even outside of what you do in the young adult world. Um, you write actively for the Post. Yes. Um, what kinds of stories do you end up gravitating toward? Oh my gosh, I've covered everything from political campaigns to the Academy Awards to state dinners. I accidentally touched Jennifer Lopez's butt at an awards ceremony once and I, you know, have been within spitting distance of the president. So I do um I do a really wide variety of things. The stories that I like best are the stories that let me burrow in with regular people during really compelling times of their lives. So um I did a series of stories about same-sex marriage last year that let me spend a lot of times with couples as they plan their weddings, with people who oppose gay marriage as they sort of wrestled with the issue. So I really like stories that let me be a fly on the wall as, as other people are living out issues in very personal ways that we're talking about in the United States from on a, you know, in a, in a mass level. Hmm. Sounds like that could also probably apply a little bit to uh, what you're doing with this novel as well. There's really been no better training for being a novelist than being a feature writer because you get very attuned to listening to how people talk, not how you wish that people will talk, not the grand speeches that you wish people would make. Because in real life, people cut themselves off, people start over, people trail away, people change the subject, as you can hear from my monologue right now. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really hard to capture voices and to capture people in all of their beautiful imperfections. And I think that when you're a journalist, you you grow to look for that. And that becomes really useful when you're trying to find dialogue later as a novelist. That makes me think a little bit about the character of Hanukkah herself and who, you know, she's the narrator of this book. And, you know, I don't want to give away too much here or there, but, you know, she's wrestling with some things. And I feel like there's several points at which her narration where she sort of backtracks or is like, well, that's not really true. Or she's hiding things. She's sort of maybe not ready to face certain things yet. Do you feel like that's sort of part and parcel of what you're talking about, about the way we think and act in, in real life? Absolutely. The way that we narrate our own stories, the way that we recreate memories, this is something that that Hanukkah is struggling with throughout the novel is, is how to tell her story, how to make peace with her own story, how to not blame herself for her own story. And I think that you, um, th- there's a little bit of an unreliable narrator, but she's also at some level aware of her own unreliability. She's, um, she knows that she's wrestling through something really difficult. And, and I like that we get to go along with her as she does that. I also wondered, uh, you know, given the historical setting of the novel, whether there was a certain journalistic desire to get things correct factually, if that was something that was at the forefront of your mind as you were writing. I I am so lucky to live in Washington, DC, one of the best research capitals of the world. We have the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. They have an amazing research library that I decamped to several times. We have the Library of Congress. We have all of these archives. World War II is a subject that has been written about from so many angles that I knew if something was factually wrong or if something was tonally wrong, that thousands of people would would know it. Or even if just one person knew it, I, I would know it. I would know that something was wrong. And that would make me feel like I hadn't done due diligence. So it it was really important to me to have the story both be correct and also feel correct. 
And uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you know a trip to Amsterdam really was sort of uh, what helped spark uh, the story specifically. But I wonder, from a, a research perspective, or even just maybe seeing the lay of the land and things like that, was that also helpful um, in terms of getting some of the details right? It, it was helpful. I mean, I would say that this novel was a sensory experience on every level. It was helpful for me to know which canals smelled like fish and which what what types of treats someone might eat and what those tasted like and how they would melt on your tongue and and how cold it would be and what the the air would feel like. So I think usually we think of research and we think of opening a book, but sometimes research is ordering a pastry and and being really aware of of what that experience is like. So I, I tried to bring that into the book too, and I, I hope I succeeded. Mm-hmm. A couple of, I'm trying to think of a few of the smaller details that struck me. One was, I guess, that um, uh, there's a note about how uh, boys will often take, derive their nickname from the center of their name as opposed to the beginning or the end. I think there's a line about uh, Hanukkah having some hot uh, milk, I think, with anise in it. Where, what were the sources for some of those details? Were those things that came up from your travels and, and research, basically? I mean, I think that I had hot anise milk <laughs> there, and that and that was one of the first things. But also, often what would happen is I would read about something that people would eat in a book, for example, in a memoir of World War II. I would read about them eating breakfast, and then I would go try to find that breakfast so that I wasn't just relying on you know, what someone else said it tasted like. I was relying on what I thought it tasted like. Um, I found... You have videos on on YouTube or documentaries in the library that were really helpful because you you could see uh, what people were what people were wearing, what the streets looked like while they were occupied. That was one of the most shocking things to me is that I think we think of occupation as sort of being a a heavy blanket that falls over the whole city. But people have to go about their daily lives. People still have to go grocery shopping and get to school, and they they have to have romances and dramas and sadness and and care about trivial things like holes in their socks all of these lives are still going on and so being able to to see documentaries or to see real life footage or to see real life photographs i think helped me try to find the the small human stories within this large story of humanity Going back into your, your own path, uh, as far as writing goes, did you make a conscious decision at a certain point where you're like, I want to write longer form fiction? I, I want to, I don't want to say transition, but like, do you, do you, did you know, like, I think I have a novel in me and I really, in addition to the writing that you do with a post, you want to explore this as well? It wasn't a totally conscious decision. The writing that I do for the post, my day job, takes up a certain portion of my brain. And it's it's really taxing in that certain portion of my brain. And I love to write. So I think that I was looking for something that I could do when I got home that didn't feel like an extension of my my job, <laughs> you know, that, mm-hmm. that felt like that felt like something that I could exercise a creative part that was that was a different part than what I than what I did all day long. Mm-hmm. I think I first started off by saying, you know, can I write a thousand words? Can I write a thousand more words? What about 10,000 words? Could I write 10,000 words? If you interviewed my agent, she would tell you I sent what is literally the worst possible query letter that an author can send, which said something like, I've written half a book. It might be really bad. I'm honestly not sure. Would you mind reading it and telling me? <laughs> and, and she read it and agreed to represent me. But bless her because I don't think many people would have opened any attachment that came with that email. (laughs) Um, Did you originally envision this book as being a young adult book or was that something that came later? 
No, that was actually my agent's idea. With this particular book, I, I came back from Amsterdam. I molded over for a while. I ended up sending her an email that was one of those like two o'clock in the morning, nine paragraphs email that was like, here's what I'm thinking. And I, I, I laid out this story as I was envisioning it so far. And she wrote back uh, and said, basically, what if they were teenagers? You know, I was, I was sort of following along with the story you were telling until you got to the point where you introduced the younger characters. And what if they were all younger characters? That's what seems compelling to me. And at first I was a little dubious, but once I started writing, I realized she was, she was absolutely right. And uh, how did the book end up finding its way to Little Brown? Uh, my agent, Ginger Clark, had worked with Lisa Yaskowitz, who's my editor, had worked with her before and and approached her before approaching anyone else just because she thought she would like it. She thought she would understand it. So Lisa did like it, and she and I talked. And what I loved about the conversation is that you know, she, she said, I, li- I like what you've done. She was, she was complimentary. But when I said, what are your thoughts? How can we make it better? She, she was ready to get to work. And I, I love editors who, who make you work and make you better and are smarter than you. And Lisa is all of those things. So I was really lucky. Do you remember any specific uh, details or suggestions that you really feel paid off during the editing process? There's a whole subplot that didn't exist um, in my first draft that that I added in at, at Lisa's suggestion, and I'm not going to say what it is because mm-hmm. it's sort of a crucial subplot. But um, but it's a crucial subplot, which gives you an idea <laughs> that that it was an important that it was an important add. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned before that you thought you may have more uh, historical fiction in your future. Is there anything you're currently working on that you feel like you can talk about? The book that I'm working on right now is is actually nonfiction. It's a completely separate project. But when I'm when I'm finished with that, I hope to return to the World War II area. I, I have an idea for a book set in an American internment camp in World War II, the only family internment camp that held both Japanese and German prisoners. So I'm I have an idea that I'm playing around with with that that I think I'll be excited about. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you again for taking time to speak with me, and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Once again, I've been speaking with Monica Hesse, whose novel Girl in the Blue Coat is out in April from Little Brown. Thank you for listening to PW Kids Cast. 